Hello and welcome to Show Me The Money, the podcast that looks at the business side of movies and TV with me, Jess Robinson, and the beautiful Stephen Follows. Thank you. Good morning, morning. I, I do like that you're calling me beautiful because it's a podcast, an audio podcast, and no one can verify that. So I'll, I'll take that. Thank you. What are you wearing? <laughs> Jess, look, you taking this podcast lower and lower is getting earlier and earlier in the show. No, I think, I think they want to know. I think every week you should wear a famous costume from a movie. Well, I, I'm always wearing a tux because uh, I'm a classy person. Sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm wearing a full tux right now. Lovely. I'm dressed as an Ewok. <laughs> um, so firstly, the BFI says the UK's booving... I'll start that again. Booving. The BFI says the UK's booming TV and movie production industry is facing a skills shortage. Can you tell us about that, please? Yes. What skills? Uh, so- so this is skills with a, an S at the end, not a Z. It's not like beatbox skills or something you'd have <laughs> at the gym, you know, yeah. where the worse spelt the class is, probably the harder it is to do. It's not one of them. Um, no, this is the BFI have commissioned. Well, so one of the things that the BFI, the British Film Institute, do is that they commission reports on, on things that need to be sort of investigated. And that's their role as a sort of public body. And um, this is a very pertinent issue because there's so much filming going on in the UK across film and TV, largely from the streamers. Um, mm-hmm. And um, which is great, and loads of people are being employed. But as with anything, when especially when something grows quickly, there's there can always be negative um, negative externalities. I think it's a technical term, um, but bad things that happen after good things. Um, and one of them is that there's just not enough people, uh, skilled people, to do the jobs. And so they've done a calculation. Uh, so they think that uh, by 2025, we're going to need about 21,000 extra employees. Wow. Um, which is quite a lot. Um, and because the the hard thing is that they need them to be like trained up. It's not just the, the entry-level jobs. Otherwise, you could just be like, okay, we'll just go and recruit them. Or, or you do what they did during the Olympics and get the army in. Um, actually, to be fair, the army might do a quite good job on some of this stuff. Um, but actually, what they need is trained people and people with experience. And so you can't just sort of magic up that kind of experience. So it's actually a, a slow, a bigger sort of problem because you can't just snap your fingers. Um, and they've said that they, they think the industry should be spending about 1% of the production spend on training. So sort of 100 million a year, they think, should be spent mm-hmm. on helping people get in the industry. Um, but they um, it's a really good report, actually. They did a really good job because it's it's a sort of... It's a very acute crisis if you're on set, but sometimes it can be hard to understand if you're like not in the thick of the whole thing. And so mm-hmm. they they identified four things that were going wrong, um, or four four ways to improve things. Uh, one of them was they said a more formalized approach to hiring, um, workplace management, and professional development. So the number one, no, this isn't from the report. This is now from a survey that I did a while back with um, the call sheet, which is an employment website. The number one way people find new entrants is via Facebook. Oh, right. Uh, putting out a call going, oh, my God, we need someone tomorrow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because people I just aren't that, that. Yeah, exactly. So people aren't that forward thinking with these things. And so it's quite decentralized. Word of mouth is a big thing, even at the higher level, less so Facebook. But, you know, if you're a costume designer, you might be offered a job by someone who you've worked with before and, and, and you're busy. So you say, well, have you have you heard about Bob or Alice or whoever? Oh, yeah. And so, like, that's how jobs happen. I recently uh, was filming something and we had um, a new makeup person and they found out about the job the night before on WhatsApp. <laughs> that is actually fairly standard. I mean, yeah. that, I, that that wouldn't surprise anybody. 
And that's a terrible way of employing people. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, to some degree, it has benefits insofar as people are recommending each other. And hopefully the word of mouth means that, you know, people's reputations are on the line. But it does reinforce anything that's already going wrong. So it'll reinforce whether it's certain kinds, certain class or certain, you know, social structures or um, friendship groups or whatever. And it can be manipulated. And it's just not the way you should employ people, really. Like when you have a sector that's this big you would hope that there would be bigger sort of HR departments and procedures. And, and also it's the same for complaints. If you know you get your jobs by everyone thinking you're nice to work with and you only get them the night before, you're much less likely to complain about something that should be complained about. Mm-hmm. Um, so they need to sort of formalize that a bit better. Um, they want stronger bridges to the industry uh, from education and other sectors. So they think that um, there's certainly a disconnect between uh, some of the film schools, most of the film schools, to be honest, because film schools can teach film theory, but even the practical ones are, are focusing on short films and more abstract ideas, which is great because they're perhaps training up the next generation of directors and writers and producers. But when it comes to the film industry, when it comes what, what skills you need to um, get on set and be able to be good at your job is perhaps different. Um, and again, I did a survey a while back with them with the call sheet, and we asked. Uh, uh, employers of new entrants in film and TV, what kinds of qualifications they were most interested in seeing in new entrants. And by far and away, the most powerful, most useful qualification you can get is a driving license. Mm. And when we looked at like having a degree, it was really unimportant. And mm. having a film degree was even less important. Mm-hmm. So like if you, the more likely you are to have a film degree, the less likely you are to get hired in the film industry. Um, because I think people have, have had some negative experiences with film students thinking they're going to come in and direct. And really, you just need to be there. A really for... good runner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so there's that. And then they think more comprehensive careers information. So they say that there's a big lack of awareness of all the different types of jobs in the film industry. Um, I mean, if you've, have you, as you've been on more and more sets, have you sort of realized just how diverse all the different jobs are? And there's always a weird job that you never even thought needed to happen until someone says, oh, yeah, I do this. And you're like, of course oh. you do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There was somebody in charge of making a face mask that looked like cat food the other day. So, I mean, that's the sort of thing that I work in. But I also um, overheard, um, my ears were always, always pricking up, somebody having an interview to work on MasterChef. And this oh. guy was in his, I would say, his 20s. And at that time, he was sort of a runner and was going for a slightly higher up job and the woman was saying and what do you want to do ultimately do you want to get into camera work or do you want to uh, you know explore because um we have Josh who's worked with us for 10 years and he now uh, uh is you know does camera two or whatever mm. and I thought that was really nice and and the way you know you can literally work your way up and and shadow people and get people to take you under their wing and mentor you and it doesn't have to be I'm going to be a cameraman you've you've made your mind up at 18 and you go and study for that yeah you can see what fits for you I think I think the industry wants to skill people up and I think that everyone in the industry has only has come that way themselves I think the problem is everyone is short-term focused because they never have enough time and money so that's awesome that the person doing the interview there had taken the time to focus on the young person I hope he got the job as well yeah and that's and I hope more people do that. I think the tricky thing is when you're working so hard, you just don't have the time to do that. And so mm. it's kind of on people like the BFI to suggest how we might have structures across different 
um, all these different productions that sort of pop up and need someone urgently and then move on. And mm. um, and that's but that's the last suggestion actually is that they want better data to you know to look at who's employed, how long it takes for them to get from this role to that role or a different grade, or even just forecasting demand for production crew because mm. uh, you know these films come from like quite quickly seemingly and then they suddenly just skill up. And if three or four of them come at the same time, or in this case, sometimes it's 20 or 30, they're quite big. I mean, that can have a real problem because they're all happening at the same time. So recently filmed here has been Jurassic World Domination, The Batman, Barbie, The Crown, Lord of the Rings. These, as you can imagine from just seeing the shows, how big they are. And anything in the and anything that's not in the modern era, so anything that's in the past or in the future or in the fantasy world, is going to have so much like costume, makeup, clothing. I mean, mm. Game of Thrones was all Northern Ireland and there's so much skills there now. So many people in those kind of fields because they became, you know, mini industries for yeah. for a few years. Um, but I think that it's not just so, yeah, they need they need more people, but it's actually affecting quite a few things. So they're worried that it could affect the quality of work, mm-hmm. um, not having enough people. Which might be that literally you're having to promote people quicker, which means you've got less experienced people in the job. Yeah. Um, but also there's another part of this, which is that this is all the properly funded productions. This is all the sort of streamers and studios and things. But the way it's often worked is that the independent film sector that never has enough money, I mean, no one has enough money, but really doesn't have enough money. They kind of, the one for me, one for, the, one for them, one for, one for me is kind of the idea where you go and... You work on a on say a Jurassic World and you earn loads of money and then someone comes to you with an independent movie and says hey I'm only shooting for three weeks and it's very very bad money but it's a really interesting production and the director's going somewhere and the star is there and that completely disappears when everyone is being offered huge money to constantly work mm. and so that's a real problem for the pipeline of the next generation of artists and filmmakers and like there is a symbiotic relationship that's kind of undermined by this. Um, but um, it might also be the reverse. If, if when you know, if and when the streamers start spending less, and we have all these spare skill people, you might see an explosion of incredible indie, indie films. But it would be better if it was a bit smoother. Um, and then the other problem mm. that this creates is that there are increasing numbers of reports and people talking anecdotally, but also bigger reports talking about burnout and mental health crisis. And um, Looking Glass is a, a survey that was done recently, and they said that. Uh, in the UK and film and TV, 39% of people work more than 50 hours a week, which is up from 29% right. a couple of years before that. Um, one in six are working more than 60 hours a week. That's me. Um, and 78% said that their uh, work intensity is having a negative impact on their mental health. Mm. So over three quarters of people are saying, reporting themselves, they're saying my work intensity. And that's just mental health. You've also got family issues, as in you can't, it's very hard if both of you, I mean, I know a couple who who both worked in the film industry and one of them literally had to give up his job and set up a separate business so that he could look after their kids yeah. and be there to pick up in school. Yeah, but I, I mean, so what about you? You were just saying that work intensity was pretty pretty intense as well, right? Very, yeah, absolutely. Even if you're just <clears throat> called at, a, you know, five in the morning and you're waiting there, you can't do anything else. Like you've written that day off or whatever. Or mm. if you do try and do other things then, but you might not be on set till, you know, if they jiggle things around or whatever. Um, <clears throat> you might be, not be on set till 8pm or something. And then you're just, yeah. And you can't leave. You can't say, oh, "I've got to pick my kids up." Right? No, like, God, no, 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 no. You have to be you get there. a terrible you have to be reputation. Ready, ready to yeah. do your one line. <laughs> well, exactly. And even if you're in the back of a shot or something, like they can't shoot without all the bits because filming is so complicated. This yeah. it's so many different moving parts. And if any one of them isn't there, 
you can't do it. And you, I mean, can you imagine if you, on the one hand, if you're a mother and you have to go, or a father and you have to go and pick up your kid, that's entirely reasonable. On the other hand, if, imagine you're the producer and you're like, okay, so I'm spending 50 grand to shoot mm. today, but, you know, we, uh, one of the performers just disappeared. Like, that sounds terrible. Yeah. And those two things are both reasonable. Um, so there was talk about job share, but that's, I mean, it might be easier behind the camera than in front of the camera, unless you've, unless you've got a twin. Um, uh, no, I don't. I sort of am my evil twin. <laughs> You're doing both the evil twin and the, the different hats. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I, we've got to, I think the industry has got to get better at this, but I, I also feel that it'll, I mean, I don't know if this is pessimistic. I feel like it will probably get to it quite slowly. And then what will probably happen is that the pound will get stronger or the tax credit will change or the streaming economics in the global marketplace will change because of a recession or whatever. And then the tap of all of these productions coming over will disappear and then everyone will change their priorities again and run all the way to the other side of the ship and you know it's not gonna it's it's unlikely to stabilize the bfi doing a good job to help do that but it's the nature of it i think sadly because in my cloud cuckoo head i'm like oh well that's okay that means there's lots of opportunities for graduates and um people wanting to get into the industry that's that's excellent if they're facing a skill shorter but it's not really about that is it no and but that can be true as well like it it is a great time and and i'm certainly not ungrateful for all of the productions that are coming in although you know so many people are employed and there's money that's going into the economy and you know this is fundamentally a good thing it's just that it is such an extreme thing that it has a negative side to it and Mm. it's exactly people like the bfi whose job is to sit there and go well hold on hold on let's think about the long term um although some of the streamers are doing i mean they're not doing things at a massive massive level considering how big they are but netflix and amazon have both committed in millions i mean netflix just over a million or so and amazon said they'd do 10 million in sort of supporting the industry and netflix have got a a system called a project called a grow creative uk and they're putting money into training people up and having um, like internships and things like that although you can also imagine i mean that's that's great and that's millions of pounds but it doesn't spread very far because the industry is so big and netflix have recently announced another set of layoffs and stuff so you can't imagine it wouldn't take hard to imagine that these kinds of schemes are unlikely to be renewed if loads of people are being unemployed and they have a financial problem you know because they're going to have problems of billions and billions on their balance sheet if they Mm -hmm. have a problem so we can't. We should take their money and be very grateful and say thank you. But we can't rely on the private sector to suddenly sort of sort this skills shortage out, even if they've got all the best will in the world. Right. But, um, yeah. So I think it's a good thing, um, and I'm glad the BFI are looking into it. Um, but uh, it's. I'm a bit pessimistic as to whether it will have much of an impact in the long term. But. Mm. Mm. Interessante. Now. Uh, The Edinburgh International Film Festival is set to return fully in person for the first time since the start of the pandemic. First of all, when is it? (laughs) It is the 12th to the 20th of August. Oh, that's interesting, because if you're going, then you could see my show. (laughs) Or if you were going to go to Jess's show, instead, you could go and see a movie at the film festival. Or both, Stephen. (laughs) Uh, they also have the the TV festivals happening the twenty fourth to the twenty sixth. Yeah. So yeah, there is Edinburgh is busy, busy, busy in it's August. It's going to be really busy, and I have organised to have a massive poster right outside where most of the TV festival is taking place. Very good. Yeah. So anyone that takes a photo, a selfie um, with you and that poster, 
they should get, they should get some sort of reward. I'm not quite sure what <gasps> yeah! it should be. But... Oh my god, do it! Um, <laughs> I, if you, the reward is if you get a picture um, next to the poster or with me. Um, you get to meet me and um, <laughs> I, we okay. will have a lovely little chat and possibly a drink if you're not well, weird <laughs> than me. <laughs> okay, fool. Go save that you, the last minute. You, whoa. Um, um, but, yeah, no, I, it's, you it's might get nice a free ticket ha- as well if it's a really good picture. That's what mm. I'm going to do. All right, best picture gets free ticket. Yeah. All right, that, that sounds like a fair one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you don't get anything if you deface her picture. No, no, no drawing moustaches or glasses on me, please. That cost me £600, that poster. <laughs> <laughs> Not also, if you, if you get work based on you having a moustache, you'll have to then actually grow one to match the person they thought they were hiring. So it's going gonna, it's gonna... to... Or just stop bleaching, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I was assuming that would be harder. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Back to the film festival. Um, yeah, so the film festival, it's been happening in June for the last decade or so it used to happen in august and yeah. then they moved it because they were like oh this doesn't make any we, sense we better do it when jess is there Ex- that was exactly what they were saying mm. um and uh but they've moved it back into august and it's happening uh, as you said like in person which is just another one of the festivals on the sort of annual festival circuit that is totally moving to being back in person and and we're all acting post-pandemic and there, uh, recently we had um last week was cine europe which was a, a trade show for for the cinema industry in, mm-hmm. in Barcelona. And uh, I was talking to some friends that came back from there recently and they were saying how a load of them got COVID and stuff. It's, and it's nothing to do with these, uh, anything particular about these events. And it's not to say these events did anything wrong. There's a lot of COVID going around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting that we, as an industry, are just saying, okay, we're back. We're, we're physical. We're going to see movies. I mean, they might have masks, but I'd be surprised if it's mandatory. I can't see where it, have, it is elsewhere in life. And so I think that's, Interesting, because I think it's time. I mean, I don't know if it, it seems like the, that's what's happening. I can't say if it should or shouldn't, but it seems like we're all getting back to having these regular film festivals at the same sort of time in the year. Mm. And then we can use them as we always would to, I mean, film festivals are there to sort of show off new movies and to allow people to connect and to sort of promote ideas. And some of them also have, like um, Edinburgh has a talent lab where they support uh, scriptwriters and directors working on their first feature. And so quite often there's industry programs. Uh, Toronto, which is happening in September, has a lot of, has a whole industry conference as well. So they tend to do multiple things rather than just be about like, oh, here's a new movie and here's a premiere. They tend to have all this little, these sidebars around them. And that's kind of good for the industry as well. So it's exciting that everything's sort of coming back. Um, and uh, I think if, if you're in Edinburgh and you've mm. seen Jesse's show twice, mm. I would highly recommend uh, mm. going to a film festival because it's kind of fun to see movies before you know anything about them. But also you get to see, it's almost like it's the fun side of behind the scenes of the industry because the unfun side is to do the 16 hours on set at three in the morning in a field uh, or the sort of go to the film markets where it all just seems a bit more like um, incomprehensible sausage making and it's just like not very interesting. Whereas film festivals is all the fun, sexy, arty side of behind it within the industry and they're a lot more accessible than, than you'd think. Yeah, um, I'm going to go. Are you? Have you been to many film festivals? No, I haven't actually. I've always wanted to. I've been to it. I went to a short film festival once, but I can't remember where it was. And my friend's film, Love, is out at the moment. Uh, my friend Gemma wrote a film 
Um, and that's doing well in some of the film festivals, which is really exciting. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, no, I th- it's it's really fun when um, you have a friend who's got a film that going festival. So what happens when you have a, fe- a film going into festivals is that you're submitting the festival to uh, the film to the festival programmers way ahead of time. They're watching loads and loads of movies and then they're trying to find the best new movies to, to screen. And they want premieres. Like all the main currency for film festivals is premieres. And that might be a world premiere, which is the best thing. Um, and then there's sort of international premieres, as in outside the home country, or European or UK, or even just a Scottish premiere. Mm-hmm. And they don't, they don't all have to be like that. But the the more you can give a festival exclusivity, the more likely they are to screen it, because they that's what they want to do. Um, and so you've got the biggest festivals, um, which would be sort of like Cannes and Sundance and Venice. Uh, they they want the, the premieres. They're more likely to get them. If Cannes says, can we have the premiere, and Edinburgh says, can we have the premiere, you're going to give it to Cannes. Mm-hmm. But they all happen at different times in the year. So the Sundance is in January, but the deadline is in September. And Sundance has some of the biggest numbers of people into, uh, entering short and feature films. So around September, you do have this flurry of filmmakers being, oh, I almost made the deadline, almost made the deadline. Um, and so Edinburgh, but Edinburgh's the probably the second biggest in the UK after London. London's huge. yeah. Um, but Edinburgh's the oldest continually running film festival. It started in the late 40s. And so you're going to see movies no one's ever seen, but you're also probably, because it's the premieres, you're going to have literally, they're going to have physical premieres. So when I was saying premieres, I meant no one had screened it before. and But then you might have a physical premiere where all the stars turn up and stuff. And so you get to see things. And so when you're a filmmaker, you submit your uh, film and you're trying to play the game of, mm, we think we've got a shot at getting in Sundance or Cannes, so maybe we'll hold it back. And then once you've premiered somewhere, you've then got lower tier festivals which is a horrible way of saying it but you know edinburgh is lower than Cannes. that doesn't mm-hmm. mean edinburgh is not still amazing but maybe you premiered at Cannes, and then edinburgh's like oh can we have that as well and then you've almost got a year while your while your film is hot because let's say you premiere at, at sundance and then you're going to be uh, edinburgh and then you're at a smaller festival and a smaller festival when it comes around to the year anniversary of your first screening then there's a whole new le- set of films that are sort of interesting and and right. so you kind of lose that, yeah. that that first year. You're really you're really hot right now, uh, and then it kind of disappears a little bit. In fact, it disappears off a cliff. And I've I've I met a filmmaker a while back who'd been going to. He went to he had a short film that was doing very very well, and he went to about sixty festivals in the year, and they were all paying not him but they were paying for his flights and accommodation. Mm-hmm. And he was living quite cheaply, and he was having a whale of a time. And I met him towards the end of his run. Where he was, I think I was in Durban at the time, but he was like, "Oh, it's so cool! I spent the last year just going to festival to festival to festival." And I was, and I said to him, "Well, have you managed to get like an agent? Have you got the next set of deals going on?" And he was like, "No, no, no, no. There's plenty of time." And I was like, well, "I'm not sure. Having having been through that myself, like oh, ten wow. years ago, I know that there's this." Moment. And then we were chatting a few months later, and he was like, "Wow, it was just like it was really, really hot, and then it just disappeared." Aww. And you know, he still made the great film. He still got, you know, it's not like he's dropped at all but yeah but that's you just, hard isn't it especially for it your is. mental health if, if nothing else Com- completely but it must be the same for you when you have a show coming out and like a tv show and you're and you're really hot and everyone's talking about you then but when the show when the series finishes or another series is now the hot thing it can feel very hot and cold right you're only as good as your last job mm-hmm. that's yeah what, that's what they um that's what they say and i you know yeah it's it's true really you're only yeah Sometimes you feel like you're literally on top of the world and the world is your oyster and everything's, you know, there for you. And the next time you're scrabbling to get, you know, a couple of lines in a something or other. So, yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. 
But are you going to are you going to go to the film festival in Edinburgh? I don't know. I probably not. I mean, there's so many of them. Um, there's so many film festivals that I'm sort of trying to keep. I mean, I was traveling a lot for the last six months or so, and then and I'm probably going to go to Toronto in September, and then New York again in in October. So the idea of of traveling, I know Edinburgh is not that far, but still, the, the, there's a sort of it's not so much the distance. It's this the when you go to a festival, I want to go all in. Like I mm-hmm. want to go and to all the events, and mm-hmm. I don't tend to see many movies because you kind of have to choose what part of the industry you engage in. But to go just a tiny bit is is really hard because it's expensive, and also you kind of just realize you get FOMO everywhere because everyone's like, oh, are you coming to this thing? Or are you going to go meet this person? Or have you seen that film? And you you feel like you've done 1% of it. So I like to sort of go and properly be there. But Edinburgh, because of all these overlapping festivals yeah. and things, just sounds like it's going to be really frenetic, really expensive and really just – and I – I might just sort of stay and, and be calm for a bit so that I can go and have t- fun in Toronto or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, mm. yeah. So it's nice to see everything coming back. Uh, that is yeah. that is nice. That is exciting, isn't it? I hope um, I keep hearing in the news about COVID levels rising and things like that. I really doesn't, I hope it doesn't put people off. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to see. It's. I think the variant is the issue in the sense that at the moment, I don't know what it was, it was almost 2 million people in the UK have it. And I've got so many friends that have it right now, but yes. we've all sort of got sort of internalised the mild version of it. People are still being quite badly, you know, hurt by it, but it's most people have, uh, get over it. Most people are just they, feeling they, a bit rough, aren't they? And then Yeah, and they have a horrible few weeks and then everyone else sort of adapts and says, okay, well, we, we've all been there, we know what it is. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that, so I, I suspect unless there is some sort of fundamental change in it, I think we're going to go back. And that couldn't happen sooner for the film industry. Oh, yeah. You know, for talked before about cinema attendance and mm. film festivals do have a major function in all, in all of the parts of the industry and the economics of the industry. So hopefully we can go back to having, you know, all that fun and, you know, all that stuff that helps the industry function. Mm. Bodies crossed, as they say. Um, I like this next story. Uh, In the past 20 years, and particularly the last 10 to 15, the average age of actors appearing towards the top of the bill in film and TV projects has risen significantly. (laughs) Why is that good? Because it gives me hope. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, are you ageing as well? Because you've told me previously that you weren't ageing. I was trying to do it backwards, but it's just not working. (laughs) Well, actually, you would be very uh, anti the trend right now. If you were suddenly getting younger and younger, that would be very bad for your career. So if you do have that option, don't do that. Okay, sure. Okay, good. I'm glad that makes that easy. Good advice. Um, Yeah, this is a big bit of work done by The Ringer, um, which is an online publication. And uh, I I actually know a lot about it because they reached out to me. I did a much smaller article about this because I was looking at... Uh, a, a tangential topic about a month ago and I found the same thing they did mm. and I sort of went on a detour and did a bit of research on this and published what I found these guys went deeper and spent longer on it and stuff so that but they were reaching out to me before they published so that we could I mean honestly it was like a you could, it's exactly as you imagine when a like three nerds get together and um I shared my screen when because they they just reached out on a zoom and like hey can we chat we want, we want to talk about what we found and and the way that they there's a number of ways of crunching data and, and they had crunched it slightly differently to me and so they'd found a more extreme uh, uh set of data of the results of the same trend I'd found so we found the same thing but we'd found different extremes and um so we were just trying to work out how how it was different and I shared my screen and went through just like okay it's just easier if I share my screen and I got my spreadsheet up and going through this 
this. And they and I've never seen people look so happy. Uh, they were just like, oh, look at that, look at that. And then they showed me theirs. You know, I showed them mine, so then they showed me theirs. <laughs> and theirs is bigger than mine. Um, but uh, uh, it was really good. And uh, they'd done some really good work. Um, and so, but they, they also, I don't tend to try and um, editorialize too much as to why things would be happening. But that's more what they are, which they're sort of data journalists rather than data nerds. So I would I would find out a trend like this and say, yeah, look, actually, it does seem that on average, uh, actors are getting older that are in movies. Um, but I won't really, I might speculate a little bit, but I don't really know. But I want to put it out in the world and see what people say. These guys were writing a very long form article. And so they did the data work. And then they also, they came up with about six different possible reasons. Um, and it's a sort of combination of all of them in different places. So it's not as satisfying like this is the one cause mm. but they did a good job in thinking through what it might be but um so what they found um was they looked at the age of the top list two top listed actors actually they did one two and three top listed actors uh since the 1980s um and they looked at not non-animated films that had made at least 10 million dollars so every one of those bits of criteria it doesn't matter but at the same time if you change any of them you get slightly different results mm-hmm. although the trend is always the same so the detail kind of matters and doesn't uh, you have to sort of squint and and so what they found here was that the average age of the top three actors in two in 2000 was about 37 right uh by 2010 it was 40 so it's gone from 37 to 40 not a you know over 10 years it's gone up by three years mm. but by 2020 it was over 50 so it's aged 10 years in 10 years can i ask yes is it mostly men uh yes and no like both have been aging certainly men have a much uh, older men have a much easier time Mm. in film than older women although that's getting better uh and when it comes to the um top actors so here it's interesting because the the word actor can be gender neutral or it can refer to actors and actresses Mm -hmm. this they're using gender neutral okay um and so this is a trend that is uh across all areas although uh, as i said it it the industry is happier with men aging than women aging. And it you certainly used to be that 40 was this massive cutoff and sort of, and you look at the data, certainly 10 years ago, it was like off a cliff almost. And I remember reading Meryl Streep saying, the, you know, probably the best actress of all time, being like, oh, I was really worried when I got to 40. And you're like, wow, if she can't, mm. if she's worried. Mm. Um, but then you see people like Tom Cruise, who uh, he's like 50 something 57 um he's you know he's in his 50s but he's um he's still around and doing movies and so they were kind of trying to work out why this might be the case and they came up with uh six reasons i'll read them out and then we'll I'll just go through one or two of them because okay. i think someone we don't need to so one the decline of the monoculture so there's multiple streams where you can watch multiple bits of content it's not just like here is the one big movie of the week mm-hmm. there's so many different places for them uh social media uh, it's hard. we know more about stars so it's hard for people to become stars there's no mystery um less opportunity for younger stars they were saying how the um the, the kind of movies that are available are uh just different for you there's actually i'll come back to that because it's actually interesting where how someone becomes a star and they're saying there are fewer opportunities um there's brand reliability as we're starting to do more remakes and stuff like jurassic world is still pumping things out by its very nature you tend to have the stars that were in the original yeah. movies so Tom Cruise is almost exclusively doing sequels now, I think. You know, not by policy. It's just that that's the kind of things that he's still doing Mission Impossible, still doing Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Um, penultimately, we've got older audiences. We've talked before about how audiences are getting older mm-hmm. and so their brand recognition. And then anti-aging technologies has made it... I mean, I don't think... I think this is true, but I'm not sure it's the biggest of all the effects. Um, 
But the big one, I think, is the one on what they called um, uh, fewer opportunities for younger stars. Um, and so this is sort of how stars become stars. So there's sort of three ways you can become like a, well, three ways people often become a movie star. I'm just getting my notepad is, out. Yep. Go. <laughs> okay. Ready? Um, I'm also telling everyone else on the podcast, by the way. So this is, yeah, everyone st- don't listen for a few minutes. Um, <laughs> Uh, I wish I knew the backwards code from when I was a kid so I could say only you'd understand, but sadly not. Um, so yeah, you you could rise from obscurity from like uh, a respected studio movie. So you you could just be plucked out of, you know, and uh, maybe you're a stand-up comedian or maybe you're just an actor. And for some reason, you were just sort of thrown in the middle of a studio movie and you sort of start quite high up in the totem pole and you just keep going from there. Um, you could earn critical acclaim from series of smaller movies. Mm-hmm. So you then do indie movie, indie movie, indie movie, and then Marvel or Star Wars or someone says, oh, that person's good. And they sort of grab you from not quite obscurity, but they sort of plop <clears> you <throat> into a big movie. Mm-hmm. Or you cross over from being big in TV. Um, now, it's harder to do some of those things now because as this, as there are older and older stars, there, there are fewer and fewer roles for younger people because the Tom Cruise has got the role, so we don't need to go for anybody else. So that's a self-fulfilling kind of prophecy. Um, there is also uh, TV shows are, are becoming more siloed. Like Games of Game of Thrones doesn't produce many movie stars, but you could because there's so many of them as well, and they're also doing fine. If you're in Game of Thrones, you don't really need to be in a t- in a movie as well. Like you don't necessarily need to be, or in Stranger Things or whatever. They mm-hmm. are their own economy. Mm-hmm. They, whereas before, they were much more of a feeder to movies. So you you're not getting as many people going through some of these routes into these bigger movies and becoming big stars. Meaning the people that were big stars 10 years ago are the same large group of big stars that we have now. Um, so it's it's not great for, for if you're coming in. Um, but one thing I would say is that age is kind of complicated in the film industry because what we're talking about here is their actual age. Uh, usually at the movie, when the movie came out or when the movie's being shot or whatever. But what's more relevant really is what they call the playing age. Um, what do you define your professional playing age as? What, what range? Um, <laughs> you weren't too low there. <laughs> um, I would say probably it would now be m- mid-twenties, she says, hopefully, to... No, yeah, I would say like maybe like 27 to 40. Yeah, and, that, and that's that sounds about right. And so far as that's the kind of playing rate, because it, it's you know hair, makeup, costume, context, performance, mm-hmm. all these things have such a big impact. And so you do tend to find actors have a sort of I don't know like ten year playing range, and some actors I've added look a young. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's but it all depends on the role as well. Yeah. And it depends how flexible you are. Like I mean, we're talking about I mean Tom Cruise is you can imagine someone his age playing a character a while back would have been seem to be older that character would have been older whereas here he's still flying maybe there's a small suggestion that he might have been slightly retired in in top gun but not really mm-hmm. um and so their playing age thing is quite wide and when i a few years ago i looked at actors in the uk and their profiles of up-and-coming actors and there is a real skew especially for female actors um sorry women actors who earlier on in their career have uh, a, a narrow playing age but also there's so many young actresses that if you put out a casting role and all it said for the for the, the role that you're putting out is 25 year old female that's all you said mm-hmm. then 60 percent of working female actors uh, women actors says they would be eligible 60 percent of all 
women actors. Yeah, that's that's bonkers. Which includes you, because you just said mid twenties. So it's not to say it's not true. It just means that like that is incredibly hard. Yeah. To like come into. I mean, I'd have to tell you, but like that's really hard to come to and. Uh, mm. Yeah, get these roles, but it's a, it, but it is. I mean, you were talking before about male female. Like it, it definitely. There definitely is a change in culture when it comes to how we, what we are accepting on screen. And, and yeah. one of the trends, the headline trend is we're willing to accept <coughs> older people in the major roles. But one of the things that I think is changing uh, in rever- the other way around, which is for the better, is the age difference between the leading two actors, especially in things like romantic comedies. Um, so uh, I did a piece of work on looking at the, the difference in age between... I remember. Um, I, I read that. It's very good. Yeah. It's pretty terrifying some of yeah. it. Um, and I went back and found... And sometimes when you're doing research and things, you check... One of the ways to check whether you've done the work right is to look for the outliers. You know, the, the, the result that really skews all the others. And you go in and you say, okay, well, is that one correct? And so uh, I, through that process, I found a film that came out in uh, 1984 called Blame It on Rio... Um, do you know Blame It on Rio? No, but I remember you talking about it before. So, go on. Yeah, it is. Uh, did we do it on the pod or did I just chat to you over no, lunch? No, I think I it was remember. just over lunch. Yeah, I think so. Like, uh, And Blame It on Rio is one of those films where I had to keep checking whether it was real or not. So um, I don't find this funny, but it is highly funny at the same time that this was so, this actually happened. So this was um, a film that came out in 1984 starring Michael Caine. And it's described at the time as a light-hearted romantic comedy. And uh, just for context, Michael Caine uh, was 51 years old at this point, And Michelle Johnson, who was the female lead, was 18. Cool. So 51 and 18. So the plot is, and I'm going to use their surname here because it's easier. Uh, so Caine plays, uh, plays a man on holiday in Rio with his best friend. Both men have teenage daughters with them. When Caine falls for the amorous daughter, played by Michelle Johnson, of his best friend, they embark on a secret, if slightly one-sided relationship. Johnson's father is furious when she finds out that he's been with an older man and that Kane is the older man in his daughter's life and sets out to hunt him down. And she's topless throughout like two or three scenes in the movie oh, as well. So like oh, it, it's so exploitative and strange. And when you watch the trailer, the the sort of, I mean, there's so many strange elements. One of the strangest elements is that it's not played as a plot point. So it's not even, not that that would make it okay, but it's not even like, oh, I'm, you're too old for me. It's like, no, 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 it's fine. 51-year-old, 18-year-old. Yeah, what's, you know, what's the problem with that? Uh, and that year, I found more. So um, Mickey and Maud, uh was a Dudley Moore, Amy Irvin thing. With Dudley Moore was 49, Amy was 31. There was Unfaithfully Yours, another Dudley Moore film, who is 50 at this point, because it was a bit later in the year. And his co-star was 23. And then the same year, The Woman in Red, Gene Wilder was 51, and his co-star was 24. So I'd like to think that, wouldn't happen as much. I'm trying to be. I have to qualify this so much, but I'd like to think that wouldn't happen quite so much. So, when you were asking about women before, I think the average age of women has got older, but but that's a good thing because there was this weird Lolita sort of yeah you know, image of it. But um, yeah, so actors are getting older, um, and that's but and it's getting better for older uh, women actors, but it's still. It's still a highly sexist industry and a highly ageist industry, um, and this boom of content isn't isn't going to change a lot of that. Yeah, interesting. There is just there has just been a film out with um, Emma Thompson mm. um, called "Good Luck to You, Leo Grand," 
and um, or Grande, uh, and she's playing opposite Daryl McCormack, and he's significantly younger than her, and it's about a, a relationship, which is interesting. Yeah, and and that's one of the main sort of not selling points, but that's one of the main discussion points of the context of the movie, isn't it? Mm. Like, oh well, look at this, isn't this unusual? Whereas if that was flipped the other way around, that not wouldn't be the talking all. point. Yeah. No, that wouldn't. Like, imagine if you said that. Oh, and the, the funny thing about this romantic comedy is that he is slightly older than her. You'd be like, well, a lot, lot older than her. You'd be like, okay, but what's the plot? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the very you're right that it exists, and it's good it exists because it perhaps <laughs> wouldn't before. But when we stop. Like, it's when we stop talking about it. It's yeah. like when it stops becoming a thing that mm. you're like, okay, maybe we've made some progress. But, um, yeah, so it was really good research that The Ringer did. And it was sort of satisfying, unsatisfying in the sense that we no one can point to one thing and go, that is the reason. However, it is a very clear trend. Uh, and who knows if it will continue, but it is definitely happening. Mm. Very interesting and hopeful. I'm crossing my fingers. <laughs> I could still get my big break. <laughs> We've got a listener question now from Rob Cottrell. Um, and he says, please, can you do a South African accent? Oh, To you, hopefully, not me, right? Huh? <laughs> to you, not to me. Yes. He's not, he's not asking me to do Stephen. it. <laughs> uh, now, I did have um, a South African teacher once. She was a flamenco teacher, actually. Yes, I can do flamenco. I've got lots of skills. Uh, never had to <laughs> use Z. them. What um, is yeah. Okay, let's have a go. It might be slightly Australian. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Finny Flips, uh, we're there. Okay. Can you please do an episode on films that go straight to DVD VOD, please? My question about these films. I love an actor called Scott Adkins, and he is a prolific actor in this area. His movies are filmed in about 20 days, which is a ridiculous amount of time to make a film. She's very stern, this teacher. Jessica, please... Back up straight. Can you please explain the process and the monies involving in the... Ma- oh, I'm so sorry. I'm doing it wrong. Wait. Okay, Miss Lauren, there she is. Can you please explain the process and monies involved in the making of his films? I really enjoy the podcast. And please, can you do a South African accent? I think we can all agree I can't. <laughs> Did anyone actually understand that question? Because... Um, I was reading it badly. Yeah, so there, there is an actor called Scott Atkins, and he has made loads and loads of movies. Um, Filmed in about punchy... 20 days. Yeah, and and they're like, what's the... That's a really short period of time. Like, Hollywood movies yeah. might shoot for six months. And, you know, a month is a, is a very tight amount of time yes, for a small film. it's a, a lot of time. Film. Yeah, and so 20 is not very long. And also, there's, these are action films, which tend to take longer because you have to set things up and things might explode and things can go wrong. Absolutely. And you also... You, you're taking tiny fragments of each time you're shooting because you're going to cut it really quickly. So actually, it's really impressive that this guy's doing this. Um, and so this is really interesting because it, this is uh, an example of a sort of holdover of something that would exist 10, 15 years ago that, you, that started to decline but has sort of moved into a different space, which is straight to DVD or straight mm-hmm. to video, I guess, before that. Um so do you, without without wanting to out your playing age or your actual age, do you remember when you were uh, actually 15 or younger, when there was straight to DVD, straight to video, video rental windows, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And so there would be movies that would like skip cinema and go st- be made straight for video or DVD, but they had a stigma to them. Yeah, they, they were seen as, oh, it must be a bit rubbish then. 
Exactly. That's exactly it. And so, and Disney even had a period where they were knocking out sequels to their own movies. Like they did Aladdin 2 Return of Jafar, but they didn't have Robin Williams and they didn't have some of the other big actors. And it was very much straight to video. And so it was seen as a whole different subset. And within that, there grew up uh, successful mini industries within straight to video. And more recently in the sort of late, or actually during the noughties, there was a lot of stuff that was like, in Britain, we had a lot of gangster movies, gangster movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were they were going straight to DVD and they were sort of £10 uh, in Tesco's. And that and they do very well. They would, that's where Danny Dyer got a lot of his sort of success from. And, and I know a few people in there that, that did very well out of that because they could knock the movies out quite quickly. And then mm-hmm. they'd all be based on the poster and the star. And the people aren't expecting to watch them in a really expensive way. So I couldn't initially, when I started... When I first heard about all this stuff a, a long time ago, when I was learning how the industry worked, I couldn't understand how these terrible movies were making money and why they were still being made. And I would talk to people about trying to find someone who'd buy them. And I, I met someone's boyfriend at a party who, and I was talking to her, and she said, uh, I can't remember how he got onto straight onto straight to DVD. And I was like, Yeah, I don't know who watches these terrible movies. And she goes, Oh, my boyfriend does. You should you should talk to him. So she pulled him over, and I was like, Oh, so you're one of these people that like watches these terrible movies and is buying them on DVD. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, why? And he goes, well, you know, it's 10 quid. You get some mates over, you have some beers, it's fun. You know, you know what you're going to get. And I was like, yeah, actually, that's fair enough. Like, I understand that. Like, you're getting, it's almost the equivalent of the Hallmark movie or something like that. You're getting something very consistent that is different enough, but also isn't that expensive. It isn't that emotionally, like, you have to really invest in it. And if, in this particular case, Scott Atkins, he's really good at what he does, which is basically causing pain. Uh, you know, punching people, kicking people, punching people, kicking people. I mean, that's it, really. There's, there's, I mean, I've seen it. You know, there's sort of qualifiers, like he did it off a motorcycle or he he kicks someone after kicking someone else. But, like, I watched some of the trailers and, and yeah, he's punching and kicking people. I mean, that's pretty much what he's doing. Um, and apparently, uh, I'm not I'm not an expert puncher or kicker, but apparently he's very good at the punching and the kicking uh, and sort of gets respect for, like, the work he does. And so when you have a skill like that where you know your audience, like this is what the audience want, uh, and you are you can keep delivering it, like whenever you watch one of his movies, you know exactly what you're going to get. You know the limitations as well, but you don't care about them. But you, he does deliver on all these other things. And that you then, well, of course, you'll buy the next one. So he becomes a brand, and he's producing, and he's behind the scenes of some of them. Uh, so he's been minor roles in things like Doctor Strange and The Expendables 2, but really, really tiny things. But then in his movies, he's the lead person. And so he's obviously very working very hard behind the scenes to get these things made. So it becomes you you then get to know the right people, the third, the third parties that will do the selling of the movie and distribution. And so you've delivered three. And so the fourth one, when you just have an idea, they're like, oh, yeah, we're on board. We trust you. You know, it's a consistent product. And there is a consistent audience, which builds a bigger audience. People look forward to it. So it creates an industry all around one person. Mm. Um, and just to give you a, a sort of primer, because, you know, maybe it's not fair to say that he's just punching and kicking. Maybe maybe you'd want to know, Jess, um, some of the plots. Yes, of please. Of movies. Um, okay, so uh, in no particular order, we have Castle Falls, um, which... Just as a bit of background, I, I don't know this for a fact, but having seen the trailer and read about it, I'm pretty sure what happened was they got access to some sort of um, abandoned building that they could film in for, let's say, 20 days. And they were like, OK, let's they've got Dolph Lundgren. They paid him to be a cameo. And then they've got the building. And like that's a very resourceful, low budget strategy of like you have one contained location, but you have free reign in it because it's uh, abandoned. So um, the plot here. 
Rival gangs seek out millions of dollars hide, uh, hidden in a luxury condominium that's scheduled for destruction. But first, they have to deal with the janitor, who may have found the loot first. Mm-hmm. I like uh, this. Th- yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, then there's um, Accident Man. Um, accident which sounds Man? Like a- accident Man, yes. Brilliant. It sounds like it might be a, like a, a council health and safety inspector, but it's not. <laughs> Um, Mike is a tough hitman who makes his hits look like accidents or suicide. He's in a gang of hitmen, each with their own style. When his loved, when his love, uh, his loved ex, so his ex-lover is killed, Mike looks for those responsible. Um, and then Accident Man 2 is coming out this year. So you make sure you watch Accident Man first, otherwise the plot might not make sense. Sure. Um, but Accident Man is back. And this time he must beat the top assassins in the world to pr- protect the ungrateful son of a mafia boss save the life of his own friend and rekindle his relationship with his maniacal father figure. Um, and then um, and sort of like there is one he's got coming out next year called Lights Out, uh, which it's it seems a bit, this is what, they, what a lot of them are like. A drifting ex-soldier turns into an underground fighter with the help of a just-released ex-con, pitting him against the corrupt cops and hired killers now gunning for him and all he cares about. Um, I like and it. Then, this is very cool. Yeah. I want to watch all of these. Well, you see, they're fun. And I think the the trailer for Accident Man actually has him saying, hey, this is, you know, you've seen action films. This one's even better. Like, it's self-aware without being ironic. So he's really delivering on the action. And he can really do it as far as, like, he's a stunt performer that gets respect. And yet, at the same time, they're not trying to be too earnest. And so uh, the the sort of artistic reason of why why the, how this is possible is that he's delivering something people want and then on the industry side the dvds have completely so not i mean obviously you can still technically buy them but they once the supermarket stops stocking them which has pretty much happened now that was the death of that model that sort of boomed of straight to dvd mm-hmm. but that's moved into what we call tvod transactional video on demand right and so that is growing as a as a sector where people you're scrolling through itunes and you see this is the top action film this week and you look at the poster and it's got the title like that and it's got a trailer there and you're like oh yeah why not and you hit it and you watch it on thursday night or whatever and that actually is because they're cheap enough to buy and because like i said they're delivering on what you want they're low stress they're high enjoyment uh that can actually add up because you can sell them all over the world So previously, DVDs had to be physically, they had to create a master one for each country, and then you had to physically press them and ship them. And like that was actually quite a bad distribution model when you have a fringe piece of content. But now the same video file, or at least you can export a second video file quite easily, can be uploaded from anywhere in the world to the Apple servers, wherever you need to, to get it onto iTunes or wherever. And then someone can buy it, and then you'll get sent the money. So you can see this. I have no idea of the economics of how much money he is making personally, but I would, and I, w- I don't think that he'd be a millionaire off of it, but I do think it's a successful business that would grow, that he's built and earned, that you could see actually scaling quite nicely as he gets more and more famous and more people do what he's doing. And because um, you can rent it as well as buy it, it doesn't have to be transactional, mm-hmm. it can be a rental. Um, in fact, probably actually, I'm thinking about it now, probably more people are renting it because you, you know, pay four pounds and watch it once. You don't really need to own the full Scott, Scott Atkins collection if you. There's always going to be a new one every. Where few can you, you find can his rent. films? Well, mostly in lists of like straight to DVD films that you may have missed. Um, are they he's stra- pretty are much they streaming anywhere. Yeah, they, they'll be all over the. So if you're, this is one of those things where we all have the, we all have a Netflix account and um, you've got a way of engaging with it. But your Netflix suggestions will be totally different to everybody else's. So if you 
searching the action thing and you start watching some of his movies, mm-hmm. you'll then get suggested more and more. But he's made loads. He's made quite a few movies. And um, so once you get into his world, mm-hmm. uh, and having now watched loads of his trailers, I'm imagining my YouTube suggestions for the next few months are going to be nothing but... Um, you know, bad actors punching each other in different locations. Um, but that's fine. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I, once you search for him, you'll find a whole world of them. Um, and also he does, because he's a modern star, uh, different to the sort of Tom Cruise model that we were talking about before, he is on social media and uh, he's got a Twitter account, he makes YouTube videos. So you could imagine actually that, that he has got the fan base rather than the movies. Tom Cruise has a fan base but his movies are the things people like whereas with scott it's when you make enough movies and you talk openly about it you become the star and so yeah that's i'm sure if once you get into the scott atkins universe i'm sure that you'll never get out of it and you'll see so many people being i'm excited did you know of him before this question not really. I mean, I I, I, I recognise him from having seen various bits on sale at the market in Cannes and things like that. But uh, when I went and looked, watched more of his trailers and got more into it, I learned a lot more and had a lot. I mean, it's still not the kind of films necessarily that I'd watch, but I have a lot of respect for what he seems to be doing. And it fits the model of people I've met and seen before in the so 10 years before when I was more involved in it myself, seeing the DVD model where you just work ridiculously hard. You know, you're in the movies, so you've got to be physically fit. You've got to look good. You've got to, especially with martial arts, there's no way of hiding. If the community think you're faking it, then you're going to, you know, it's not going to work. But then behind the scenes as well, getting these films written and funded and start, you know, actually out there is really hard. And I'm just really impressed that um, from the outside, what all the work that's going on. Um, mm. But yeah, it's a, it's just a particular type. It's exactly the same as the Hallmark movies or something like that. Something you wouldn't call it high-class art, but that's to betray the fact that actually it's deeply enjoyable to many people. Well, I'm excited. I'm going to watch it. Yeah, we should, we'll, we'll do a watch-along. <gasps> uh, maybe, yes! maybe I can Maybe I can suggest, um, oh, which one was it called? Uh, Incoming. So, should we do a Show Me The Money watch-along? Yes, of Incoming. So the International Space Station is now a prison. This is just the best opening line of the plot. <laughs> uh, no one is getting out and no one is getting in there. But when the imprisoned terrorists take over the station and turn it into a missile, so it was the International Space Station, then it was a prison, now it's a missile, aimed at Moscow, only a shuttle, a shuttle pilot and a rookie doctor can stop them. Their task is accomplicated by rogue CIA agent Scott Atkins, who has his own plans for the station. So there's a fourth use and the terrorists within. I mean, if that doesn't promise a, 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 a Thursday night of fun, I don't know what does. Right. Rob Rob Cottrell look what you've started (laughs) what a brilliant listener question we look what you it's 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 going we're going to have wonderful watch along nights now and um, you can be the guest of honour you can introduce (laughs) the film Uh, so we'll get that set up I think because that will be really fun um fabulous thank you everybody for uh, listening again and if you like show me the money then do give us a follow in your podcast app and leave us a lovely five star review please um and don't forget to book my edinburgh show if you've got a question that you would like answered on the show then just email me at show me the money pod at gmail.com that's show me the money pod at gmail.com and we'll all live happily ever after <laughs> <laughs> Have a wonderful week, everyone. Bye. Bye.